0: Jessica here. Rami turned the reins over to me for this episode, and I can't wait for you to hear from
1: Chelsea Kogelmeyer, the founder of Bikes Oro, thoughtfully designed bicycles
0: that are meant to, well, just work. And to meet a nagging need to tackle a problem she first witnessed while living and working in Uganda,
1: Chelsea has set up an international partnership with With an organization that's working to bring bicycles to communities in Africa and is building a business with a social mission at its heart. So, Chelsea, it is so nice to talk to you. I am an avid bicyclist, and you are the first bicycle entrepreneur for Bonfires on the Move and it is my honor to talk to you today about Bikes Oro. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Absolutely.
1: So, as we get started, Bikes Oro, it's kind of an interesting name. What exactly is it that you do and why did you decide to start a bicycle company? So,
2: At a high level, Bikes Oro, we're manufacturing and selling commuter style everyday bikes that for every bike sold through us, we help get one to someone in need. So it has a very socially driven core. And it's interesting that you mentioned the name. The name actually comes from something that I said to a friend right before I quit my other job, which was that we should keep drinking another bottle of wine
0: because
2: I was going to be starting a company the next day. And she said, you have to include that in a name. And so the cool thing is it turned into O-R-O, which is a really fun, almost bicycle-looking word that also stands for gold in another language. And it had a nice ring to it. So we kept
1: Bikes Oro. Chelsea, that is fascinating. I loved the reckless optimism part of the name as soon as I saw it, because it just, I think, tells so much of your story, which I'm excited to share today. But I'm looking at Oro here, as you said that, and it absolutely does look like a bicycle. So that is a very cool, very lucky name that you guys came up with. Why bicycles? How does this relate to what you wanted to do with a business? Because you're starting businesses hard enough. Let alone bicycles with a social impact.
2: Right. Yeah, it actually stems from time that I spent about seven years ago living in Uganda and just noticing how powerful a bike could be to change someone's access to opportunities. If you're in a country that has limited infrastructure, people who are living in relatively impoverished conditions in some cases, having a car. Isn't a necessarily useful, mm-hmm. but then B, it's definitely expensive, and upkeep is expensive, and use is expensive. Whereas a bike enables someone to get around, kids to get to school, entrepreneurs to carry significantly more products, just say they're selling milk or selling chickens. You know, you can put more on the bike than you can carry on your shoulders, and you can go further. So it really changes people's ability to better themselves and almost get access to basic opportunity in my opinion education work opportunities those are basics so i saw how powerful it could be there and i thought in my head at the time how cool would it be if there was a company that sold a bike and reciprocally gave one it was very much so just a passing thought and i just tabled it and i went back to college <laughs> and, uh-huh but i was looking you know and then i got into tech entrepreneurship and The reason I wanted to do that is because I'm very driven by the concept of social enterprise. And I thought, like you were saying at the beginning, it's hard enough to start a company. It's probably even harder to start when that has a social mission attached to it because you're giving away part of what makes you a profitable company. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, well, I'll start in entrepreneurship, see if I can learn a little bit about what it means to start a company and then, when I feel ready, I'll move off and I'll start a social enterprise and be part of that movement. And then we'll have more companies in the world that are giving back. And I resurfaced this idea of the bikes and I just decided to take it on. I didn't take it as a gigantic choice at the time, I just did it. But
1: that's the I'm, reckless optimism piece, right?
2: <laughs> yeah. But I knew nothing about industrial design, manufacturing, supply chain, logistics, like all the practical pieces of starting a bicycle company were just these like abysses of knowledge that I was staring into. And I was like, wow, I got some learning to do. Uh-huh. But I almost saw it as a learning experience as well as starting a company. So I didn't mind that.
1: Yeah. So it started with this experience in Uganda You saw what bicycles could do for people there who didn't have access to other options. Now you're back in the United States and you're dealing with industrial design, manufacturing. Tell me a little bit more about what did you do there? How did you build a team around yourself and start to go after some of those challenges?
2: So... I guess where it started is as I looked at, okay, what do I need to put together to make this company real? One of the huge components was launching with a good quality bike that I believed in Mm -hmm. and thinking Warby Parker in that sense. They have a social mission, but really it leads with quality product. I wasn't about to learn how to industrial design a bike in six months by myself. So I ended up reaching out, actually, to a boutique bike builder out of Perth, Australia. And it's so funny that I found him. I'd never heard of him. His company is called Flying Machine. They make very high-end titanium bicycles. And I found him because one morning I woke up and it was about 4 a.m. I just decided I needed to 3D print something, uh-huh. and which I didn't end up doing and was kind of silly, but I found him through that search that morning and I cold reached out and I said, this is my idea. I love your bikes. I love your aesthetic. Do you want to work together? And he said, yes, <laughs> which, <laughs> we're still working together. And he designed the first full fleet, put me in touch with a manufacturing facility, which was a huge step for me. And basically the way the transaction worked, it wasn't full fledged transaction at the time. He just designed them for me. Since I bootstrapped everything, I didn't really have much to give. So he's getting royalty fees on top of bike sales. And that's how we worked out that deal. But in the meantime, I've been down to Perth and met with him. And we biked off to this great brewery outside of Perth called Little Creatures. And so that's how I approached the industrial design, which was a combination of luck and luck.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and a little <laughs> persistence
2: tenacity to move forward and just make those cold outreaches and say hey don't you want to join me in this
1: <laughs> that's great so now we have three continents involved in the story that's fantastic yeah tell me a little bit more about the bicycles that oro makes and sells because they're not your run-of-the-mill bikes right Right. So the most
2: unique characteristic that you find on them is the belt drive, which is instead of the metal chain, it's a carbon drive. So the importance there is that it doesn't rust at has seven times a lifespan and very, very little maintenance. And that really stems from my own desire of creating a very low maintenance bike. So if finances are the barrier to entry for people internationally, to get on a bike? Well, we'll pull that barrier down. If here in the States, what I see is, you know, my friends, their bike chain falls off or their tires flat, and then their bike's out of commission for two years when really it doesn't need to be like that. So how do you reduce the barrier to entry for people who literally have no knowledge about how to take care of their bike, nor a desire to build it? How do you just create a bike that works? And that's what I really tried to do when I designed the bike. Obviously, there's moving parts. But I think in the scheme of things, particularly with the use of the bell drive, which does change the costs associated with the bike, but you don't have to deal with grease, with rust, with chain maintenance, which is one of the biggest failure points on a bike.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting is when I first found out about Oro and I was looking at the bikes, I was surprised but excited to see that belt drive and again it's a little geeky right to think about what that actually does to the bike but the the benefits to the rider are huge and I think especially when you think about increasing access to ridership we're both women bicyclists grease and that is often a consideration too right you have to roll your jeans up or make sure stuff doesn't get caught in the chain. And of course, it's still moving, but the belt drive is really a solid piece of simple technology, right? That it just hasn't quite caught on in bicycles in America. And I think you mentioned it's partially due to the cost, right?
2: I think it's really due to the cost. Mine is one of the first belt drives that's under $1,000 alongside a company called Priority, which launched on Kickstarter, a few years back and they're doing something very similar without the social mission with a different brand of belt drive, but same utility. It's still kind of like carbon fibers laced through rubber. And that's the reason that people don't know about it is because it is such an expensive component. It just hasn't been on bikes that are reachable for your average consumer. But just a few days ago, I may or may not have noticed that Ikea (laughs) launched a belt-driven bike. Wow. So that's a combination of terrifying because it's less expensive and probably well-made, which not all bikes are well-made. That is a very relevant note once you get into the industry. They've probably been working on that design for a few years and just launching it. And it's Oro. We have this social mission, but the bike's are at the forefront of this becoming accessible to more people. There's only a few of us doing it, and mm-hmm. those who are know what they're doing. Except for us, we're kind of flying by the seat of our pants. <laughs> so.
1: With an expert designer along for the ride. So, yep, yeah, that's yeah. true. So what's their response been to people here in the States or who are seeing Oro Bikes? for the first time? What do they think about the belt drive or the design and how are people responding?
2: I think the design people like. It's a unique look. It's a clean and simple look. There's not tons of options. I think people like all that when they're thinking, all right, what am I going to do for my first bike or next bike or whatever decision it is? So far as the belt drive, it's actually really interesting. So we didn't hit our goal on Indiegogo. I'm not sure if you saw that, but Mm -hmm. I think given the price point around the bike and how we're telling the story, we may not have communicated it well enough, what that can do to the longevity of your bike, or it might still be so new that people are kind of, I don't know, just not ready to jump on board with that additional investment to get a bike like this. So customer-wise, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if selling direct-to-consumer with a bike like this is going to work because I think... It's too long of a story to connect with people. It's too long of a story to explain the value of this particular bike versus another one being sold online. So we're actually thinking about working more with retail shops who look at the bike and say, oh, we get it. (laughs) And they've kind of come up organically, a few relationships with shops I haven't put any real energy behind them. And so I think we're going to actually pursue that because when someone walks in the door and says, this is what I'm looking for, they can bring this bike out to the forefront and explain why it's built like it is and why it's good for someone. Whereas when you're just looking through your Twitter feed for a pretty looking bike, you maybe won't click on the bike that costs eight You'll click on the one that costs 300 It's not being as well received online as I would have hoped.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, and Chelsea, I have to tell you, I appreciate your sharing that feedback and learning too, because obviously entrepreneurship is not an easy thing to do. And so many times we talk about only the successes and the wins and crushing a funding campaign. And then there are those dark, really hard moments where you miss or you wake up and you go, oh, what the heck did I just do? And it's important, I think, to share those stories too, to not just keep it real, but it's part of the experience and it's a human experience too, right? And we don't all just wake up and win gold medals every day, so... What do you think, though, about having crowdfunding as a tool for you early on getting started? Because crowdfunding itself is a form of social entrepreneurship. Were there any things other than maybe changing your business model that you learned by doing a campaign?
2: I think it became really aware how relevant your network is and mm. that it takes... Pretty extreme virality to go beyond your network and pull people in and get the actual conversion on that. Mm -hmm. Because we got some great publicity. We were on iHeartRadio and in Huffington Post and just on a bunch of different visible public channels. And we definitely had people hitting the site, but they weren't converting. So The people who did convert, and I'm not saying that we didn't have any of those. We did have quite a few people who I didn't know, but almost all of the significant contributions were people who've known about this idea and known what I've been working on
1: for a year. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And wanted to support you, yeah.
2: Yeah, so I think for me, the biggest value of crowdfunding, A, it's allowing me to keep going. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to keep going at all because I would have zero money. But it's also just... Forced me to reconsider how I'm going to sell. And that's potentially going to give me a viable business versus having put myself under, most likely. If I'd been trying to just go the digital marketing direction, I probably would have had to seriously outspend my profit or my potential profit window to market and to get people to convert. So the fact that I became aware of that by watching how people didn't convert was so beneficial to me. It was really challenging at the time because you throw your heart and soul into building (laughs) the campaign. And I think from, I would say, by the end of the first week, I knew what was happening. I knew we weren't going to hit the goal, no matter how many different news publications we were covered by. Then you just have to redirect and you have to decide, does this experience on Indiegogo mean this isn't a viable concept at all? Or does it mean that within the current way that I'm projecting it, it's not.
1: Right. No, those are very different questions, right?
2: Yeah. When you've thrown everything into that single business model, it's very hard to come back from that. You know, I'm incredibly proud of myself that I'm standing here today saying (laughs) the company is going to continue because there was definitely some time in there that I was like, nope, I'm done shutting it down, can't (laughs) do it, I'm out.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's the optimism piece coming in, right? As I think about what you're trying to do, even just with the simple bicycle manufacturing and not simple by any stretch, right? So many (laughs) investors, and I'm sure you've heard this time and again, shy away from hardware and manufacturing because the design takes longer, the lead times take longer. Where are you going to manufacture this? Is this going to be in America Are you going to have to deal with overseas? Are you going to China? And for many people, they just kind of say, "Mm, I'm going to stick with tried and true software and founders go back and hack in their offices for two weeks and they have a product. You can't do that. So the tenacity there, I hear it reflected, but particularly what you're trying to do with manufacturing is a theme that I've seen multiple times. It's just harder.
2: Yeah, it's definitely interesting to work on the international scale with that. So I went to Duke undergrad, and I was connected by Duke's entrepreneurship program to people who have been importing and manufacturing products for their entire professional careers. And so the way that I learned all these bits and pieces that I knew nothing about was talking to people who'd had these experiences and... The way they formatted what my experience was going to be over there, my professional experience, was so much scarier than it actually was. Uh (laughs) You know, they were like, don't even consume booze. You're going to get drunk under the table. And they're going to do this. And they might treat you differently because you're a young woman. And all this stuff. And I had none of those experiences. I was working with this facility and team who was very open-minded and the doors were open on our warehouses and people were smiling and engaging the staff who I was walking in with. And it was just not the scary business experience I expected. That and so I set think that for, yeah. Yeah. And I was prepared <laughs> for something scary and to like really go into kind of a battle zone. And it just wasn't that. So there's pieces that are hard, but the pieces that are hard are the unknowns That have come up over time whether that be okay so when you produce a prototype bike it comes in the door and it it looks great like it's awesome it got here I love it it works but then when you produce a batch of a hundred there can be things wrong with the bikes so what does quality assurance look like how do you know that they're testing them the way you want them testing them should you test every bike especially in the first couple batches It's a combination of a fear of liability and the fact that these are going to be in the hands of people Mm -hmm. and basics of knowing what's going on on the ground when it's really just me. I can't exactly go over there and be like, hey, let me see you test all these bikes. I think that's the stuff that if you have a little bit more experience versus jumping off the deep end like I did, I'm sure there's structures for how to deal with that. I just don't totally know what they are.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What's... Fascinating to me, as you tell your story, is not only are you learning how to run a business, dealing with manufacturing, working overseas, building your own product, you still are committed to this social enterprise piece, which is kind of the engine driving a lot of the focus to those details and the push to get Product into your customers' hands, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I would say that's the core of it, and it's really what's helped me stay on track through the challenges through this is. Well, why am I doing it in the first place, and is it okay for there to be challenges and for pieces of the model to change if it still means I can accomplish the end goal?
1: Yeah, that's amazing. So I actually I would love to go back to that piece of it because I think it's such an interesting part of your story and the story of Oro. So tell me a little bit more about the contribution that goes back to the bicycling organization. Mm -hmm. What is the organization and how does that actually work? So the
2: organization that we're working with now is called World Bicycle Relief. They're within the bike donation space, which there's quite a few organizations who do bike donations in different ways. They're definitely the most well known. Their founder is also the founder of SRAM, although company and organization are totally disconnected. And they've been around since 2001. They came up as disaster relief for the tsunami in Southeast Asia but since then have expanded to working in Southeast Asia, in some places in South America, and that's expanding. And then also predominantly most of their operations are in the southern half of Africa. And what they do is, so they've custom designed this bike to be more durable and built just in certain ways to accommodate for different infrastructure in these countries and they bring the parts. So when you're building a bike, you're sourcing parts from tons of different factories because of the precision needed to build these different products are from a bunch of different places. So with my bikes or with these bikes, you're sourcing say your brakes from a different factory than you're assembling it in. So they source all these components and then they assemble the bikes in country where they're distributing them. They're employing local people to put the bikes together, teach them about how the bikes work, and then getting them out to people in the communities. It just is very exhaustive programming. And this would be the most relevant example, I guess, to social enterprise. But, you know, you took shoes and you dropped them in this community and they lasted for two weeks and you did it right next to a shoe store. Mm -hmm. So not only did people have shoes for two weeks, but they also put this store out of business. So they just are totally aware of all that, working with specifically localized nonprofits to get the bikes to people. There's risks associated with giving bikes out too, because they're such highly valued items. In a lot of these countries, you don't want to give a bike to someone and then have it taken
1: Mm. (laughs) from them. Mm -hmm. Um, You create a potential victim by giving somebody a high value item.
2: Exactly. And when it's a kid, that's not something that you want to see.
1: So they're very
2: aware of all those bits and pieces. And all of the international organizations, too. I think it's the UN has a new program called Girl Up that is doing bikes for schoolgirls. Everyone is aware of this as a potential problem and doing what they can to kind of diffuse it. So the way Oro's relationship then works with this nonprofit Is that just based on sale numbers, we give quarterly cash distributions to them. So someone buys a bike and we're giving them $25 per bike sold, which isn't an entirely assembled bike, but it's a piece of one. And it was kind of the best we could work out within the margins for Oro. Cost of goods and bikes is very tough. And at the beginning, I wanted it to be a total one for one. Uh Uh-huh. But just based on the bike that we built and then the nonprofit we chose to work with, it's not going to work like that. Although if we'd chosen a different nonprofit, say one who was recycling bikes and taking them over in containers, we maybe could have done that direct one for one.
1: But I think what's interesting, Chelsea, so I was poking around on the World Bicycle Relief website, the bicycle that Oro supports and that is deployed in the community, that thing is like it's serious it's a serious (laughs) bicycle so it's called the buffalo bike right Mm -hmm. which i think remind me or correct me if i'm wrong it's related to the water buffalo or it has the Mm -hmm. spirit of this water buffalo right like it's a serious bicycle it's designed for tough international conditions right these are exactly as you described dirt roads potholes potentially not even roads, right? So a recycled bicycle from America or Europe might not hold up that long.
2: Yeah. It's so interesting because at first I thought recycled bikes, that's amazing. Not only are we using up the excess, but we're also getting people Uh something. And you you could frame it like that, but I've heard quite a few stories from people of piles of bikes, rusted out ones and stuff with broken whatevers on it, handlebars, and the chances of those being a Buffalo bike versus one that was brought over recycled, it's a lot higher that that's a recycled bike and not trying to make additional trash heaps, trying to get someone something that works and works consistently in the same vein as we design the bikes here for the States. People deserve quality. (laughs) And within the bike space, I think it's easy to buy something accidentally That might break in six months versus in five years just because you didn't know that the component that was put on there is just not going to hold up.
1: Yes. I think that's so important, what you just said, too, about wanting and deserving quality. If you're truly going to have an impact long-term on a community or someone's life, it's not just more junk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is
2: one of the first decisions I made is which type of nonprofit was I going to work with? And I broke down all the potential options for what it could be, including starting our own, which just didn't make sense when I'm starting another company here. And people are already doing great work. But there are definitely large companies out there who are getting rid of old inventory by breaking it down into its precious metals and Mm. selling that for credits and bikes fall in that. So there's 4,000 old coffee machines at Target warehouse. And they don't want to put it into the market because they don't want to flood it. They don't want to mess up the prices. So it goes and gets broken down. And that's just such a huge global sunk cost. And I know I shouldn't worry about sunk costs, but I do anyway. And bikes are in there. There's thousands of bikes going and being broken down. And so if there was some way to redirect those to markets that aren't the target market for these big companies, whether it be Walmart or Target or whoever else, um, that would be such a beautiful, amazing, cool thing because those
1: are unused products. Right. And they just go back to their core materials, which good that they're being reused, right? But what a shame that it made it all the way to a bicycle just to be repurposed again. Exactly. Wow. That's interesting. So I was curious, as I was poking around on the Bicycle Relief website, one of the things that really struck me, and I think you mentioned it earlier, is what access to mobility actually means for people who receive one of these bicycles. Honestly, I was stunned and blown away by not just the distances that children in Mm. African countries commute, but also what it actually means for the quality of their education and the livelihood of their families. And, I mean, the numbers, you probably know them by heart, they're shocking. So one that really jumped out to me was that in one particular country that World Bicycle Relief works in, only 45% of kids were regularly attending school. And then once they received a bicycle, 96% were. It's just It's kind of mind-blowing the difference that a bicycle can have. But the reason for that is crazy. So Zambia, the commute time to school for some children is two hours each way, every day, just to get to school. And a bicycle, even on a dirt road, is a lot faster, right? Mm Mm-hmm.
2: It's not just about the fear of having your kid out there going to school for two hours when it's a seven-year-old. Those kids are needed in their households. So... The parent's ability to let the kid out when it's not just the school day, but it's also four hours on top of that changes almost their ability to let them go. So education falls under then the chores that need to be done. And that's what I experienced when I was in Uganda, is I watched it happen. I was in a refugee community on the outskirts of the capital city of Kampala, and the kids in my community spoke a different language than the local language. And so if they wanted to go to a school that spoke
1: their language, it was about a 10-mile walk. It's almost unimaginable if you haven't seen it with your own eyes.
2: Yeah. The kids just didn't go. (laughs) Because I was like, why aren't they at school? And you'd hear all these different stories. But I actually ended up talking to the nonprofit that was based there, and they shared what was really happening. It's not fair (laughs) that those kids wouldn't be educated,
1: too. Yeah, and I think the other thing which I was really struck by is the impact on girls particularly and that the organization intentionally is weighted more toward girls. Is that also related to work at home and just access perception of who should actually be educated?
2: I would say probably in most cases Mm -hmm. because there's so many variables that keep girls out of school When they hit puberty and stuff, I think that's a pretty well-known one that there's a huge stigma and not very good resources for girls who are on their cycle and so they don't go to school. And if you're missing 25% of school a month or a year or however many, you fall behind and you fall behind really fast. So if there's ways to catalyze girls into school before that point, which that's not my world to fix right needs to step up and like figure that one out (laughs) but if you can kind of give them a solid foundation maybe there's ways to fight through that
1: and the bike might not solve everything but it's a piece of it right I mean if you're already missing a quarter of school due to a monthly cycle and you've got to walk four miles a day and your family's not particularly supportive I mean you just don't go Right. Yeah.
2: yeah, The way I think of the bike is it's not necessarily a need, but it is the opportunity. Bikes just give this opportunity. If you want to take it, it's there now and it's opening doors for
1: people. Chelsea, I love it. I think on that note, I want to say thank you so much for sharing the story of Bikes Oro. We will put more information up on the podcast website and listeners can find out more, check out the bikes, and learn more about World Bicycle Relief. Awesome, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Chelsea.
0: When a startup founder chooses to put the words reckless optimism in the name of her product, you know it's going to be a very special company. And I'm willing to bet you'll agree that after joining us for this episode, Chelsea's enthusiasm is truly contagious. She's not only determined to use better bicycle design to introduce riding to new people here in the United States, but she also built a social mission into the core of her company. And in partnering with a nonprofit that brings bicycles to communities in Africa, she's playing a role in supporting improved school attendance, creating economic opportunities, and making access faster to healthcare for youth and their families. What's also remarkable about Chelsea is her openness about the ups and downs of running a startup. Those moments when she thought about throwing in the towel after the crowdfunding campaign, they couldn't have been easy. But rather than calling it quits, she's now trying to apply what she learned about online distribution to find a better way to get her oral bikes into shops. And If that drive and focus isn't the spirit of a social entrepreneur, I don't know what is.